Um, well, hey, um, yeah, welcome again to Christian Gavis Fellowship's Dinner and a Message. Um, I'm glad you are here, whether you are uh, live and in person in the room or uh, checking out the new um, our live stream where we're using a new camera this uh, this week. So don't know if, don't know what what that means. That might it might show up more that I didn't shave this morning, but oh well. Um, or you're listening to the podcast, whatever you're doing, uh, glad you're here. My name's Donnie. I am one of your staff members. And uh, as Denise has already mentioned, if you want to uh, learn a little bit more about us, we've got that really cool uh, staff wall. And what Denise didn't say is Denise put that staff wall together, and it looks amazing. So, yeah. Um, but, yeah, we, y'all, we, we would love to, to get to know you more and, and, and talk to you because we are so, uh, so, so glad that you're here. Um, well, uh, my task for tonight is to continue our theme of Kingdom of Heaven, uh, where heaven and earth meet. This is what we do every year. Uh, every school year, we, we have a theme, and so we started this uh, way back in August, which seems like in some ways forever ago, and in other ways, seems like it was just last week. It's just, it's just crazy. Uh, but we're talking about Kingdom of Heaven, where heaven and earth meet. And when you read through the Bible, what you realize is that that's the plan the whole time, is for, is for heaven, which is oftentimes we think of heaven as, as this faraway place and this future hope, and that's just not how the Bible speaks about it. Uh, the Bible speaks of heaven as, as where God is, and what we read throughout the Bible is that God wants to be where his people are, and just where people are um, in general. And that's kind of what this green tent-like structure over here is. It's, that's called the tabernacle. In the first part of the Bible, um, oftentimes called the Old Testament, I don't like calling it the Old Testament because I think then we'd think it's not important because it's old. Uh, so I call it the Hebrew Scriptures because it's written mostly uh, in ancient Hebrew. Uh, but the tabernacle was kind of the mobile temple before there was a uh, more permanent temple uh, in Jerusalem. And that was where uh, God's people would, would go to worship, and that was where God came to dwell with them. That was the place where heaven and earth uh, met. And then when we get into um, the second part of the Bible, the, the, what I call the Greek scriptures, because it's written mostly in Greek, that's where Jesus comes onto the scene. Um, and in Matthew 4, 17, he says that the kingdom of heaven has arrived. Um, and other translations, maybe it says it's, it's, it has come near, it is at hand, it's here, something like that. But what's really cool about this is the... Uh, the Greek phrase, the Greek word that's translated has arrived um, in this English translation literally means to join one thing to another. So we literally have this idea of where heaven and earth meet in some of Jesus' first uh, public words uh, recorded in Matthew. And if you're not familiar, Matthew's uh, the first uh, book of the, of, the, of the Greek scriptures, the first book of the, of the New Testament. The first four are called Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, named after the men credited with writing them. And, and these are oftentimes called the Gospels. Gospels is a fancy word that means good news. And in this case, uh, those four Gospels are basically the accounts of Jesus' time on earth. And so we've been hanging out in Matthew uh, since, since August. Now, Matthew's is the longest uh, of the Gospels, so we could not go from chapter 1 to chapter 28. There's just no way we could cover that uh, in a school year. So we've split the year up uh, into, uh, into some series. And if you missed any of these and want to go back, we've got a YouTube channel. You can find them all. Uh, we've got a podcast, they're, they're there too. Um, but we started off with parables, kind of in the back right there, well, my right. Um, parables are stories that Jesus tells about the kingdom of heaven. And right now we're in this middle series looking at some of Jesus' interactions with people. Uh, we've got uh, three more weeks with that. Uh, you got me this week, Brandon next week, and Sam the week after that to wrap up our people series. 
Um, and then we will move into our preaching series where we're going to look at some of the uh, kind of longer sermons, talks, messages, whatever you want to call it, uh, that, that Jesus had. Um, so that's kind of where we're going, where we've been, what we're doing. That's the, that's the thing. So I'm going to pray, um, and then we're going to dive in. But I want you to give you a heads up that after I pray, right after I'm done, a video is going to pop up, and we're going to watch a short video, and you are going to be wondering, what does this have to do with the kingdom of heaven? And that's what we call a teaser, because it makes you go, I don't understand what's going on. I should pay attention. Ha <laughs> ha, I got you. So I'm going to pray, and then, uh, and then there'll be a video that's not going to make any sense at first, but it'll be okay. Um, so do what you do. God, thank you that you are worthy of our praise. Uh, and thank you uh, for each person here uh, tonight. Uh, God, I thank you for what you have been uh, showing me and teaching me over the last uh, days and, and, and weeks with this theme and particularly this talk. And I just pray now that you would get me out of the way, that you would say uh, exactly what you want to say through me, and that you would help uh, each of us hear exactly what you want us uh, to hear uh, from you tonight, God. Uh, make it good and uh, make it what you know it needs to be for each of us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And that is how season four of Friends ended in May of 1998, back when I was the second year at the University of Georgia and most of y'all were not born. Um, but so when Ross says the wrong name, and it was fascinating how many of y'all have clearly not seen that before. Man, that was, that was something. Um, here's the thing about this. This is, this is, this is, this, that gasp that the studio audience made is like, <gasps> was echoed throughout all of America at the same time. Like every living room, it was just like, what just happened? But sometimes, that, that, that's what makes for a good cliffhanger at the end of a season, right? When you're like, <gasps> and then the credits come and you're like, no! And that's what most of America did that, 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 that night. But maybe you've had moments of like where that really happened, where you were at something and there was something said or done that just made everybody, <gasps> You know, maybe it's, you know, an, an announcement is made about something or, or, or whatever, but you have that gasp 
And the thing about the gasp is, once you get past the initial, what just happened? Then you start like leaning forward to be, what's going to happen now? And we had to wait from May until September to find out what was going to happen. Uh, in that case, but you know, so yeah, you couldn't just you couldn't just stream the and binge the whole thing. Um, but when you have that moment, you've given your attention because now you're like, okay, what's going to happen next? And so the story we're going to look at tonight um, has actually has two of these gasp moments. Um, that honestly, I, I'm going to try to unpack it as best I can to help us see it because I think when we read it, we kind of miss it. Um, the people that were in this story, absolutely would have been like, whoa. And the, and the first hearers of this story, would have, it would have gotten their attention for sure, but I think we missed it. So I'm going to do my best to try to unpack it because um, I'm hoping that what we talk about tonight will be helpful because we're going to look at a story that has two of these kind of <gasps> moments, uh, and both of, which is, both of which, though, provide chances for the people there to learn something and now for us to also learn something. And my hope really is that tonight will be useful because we're going to realize that something that most people, even most, most Christians, kind of decide is, is, well, idealistic and impractical and optional. We're going to see that it's actually very practical, uh, very necessary, and required. Uh, so we're going to look at a story uh, that I'm going to have to stop and unpack some of the gasp moments, because honestly, for most of us, probably the only way we're going to recognize the gasp moments in the um, passages that I've highlighted them for you in the text back there. So that'll be, yeah, that'll, that'll help with that. But I'm going to kind of try to unpack why that's the case. So we're going to be in Matthew 8. Uh, if you've got a Bible and you want to turn there, if you've got a Bible app and you want to scroll there, feel free. It will be up there uh, also. Uh, so here we go. This is Matthew 8, starting in verse 5. When Jesus had entered Capernaum, one of the many towns that he frequented in his, in his uh, ministry, uh, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. And that's the first gasp. Okay, that's the first, what, what he just... What do you just say? And, and I'll unpack a little bit more of why that is. But the centurion, however, replies, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I say to one, go, and he goes. To another, come, and he comes. I tell my servant, do this, and he does it. And when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. And they all gasp again, like, what did he just say? And then he continues on, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And, the centurion, sorry, and to the centurion, Jesus said, go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. Not highlighted, but I just want to point something out real quick. If, you know... I, I hope we all are working toward a relationship with Jesus where we can pray and, and ask for stuff and, you know, ask for help, ask for whatever. Dare to ask yourself what would happen if Jesus said, okay, let it be done for you as you believed it's going to happen. Because that seems to point to the fact that if this guy thought maybe Jesus can't really heal his servant, then his servant probably wouldn't have been healed. So that has nothing to do with the talk, but, you know, a little freebie there. 
So, okay, so we got our two gasp moments here. I will come and heal him, and with no one in Israel have I found such faith. Now, here is why, boom. No, no, keep going. Keep going. There, there we go. Thanks. Um, I will come and heal him. The servant is in the centurion's house. So Jesus has just said, I'll come to your house. Everybody there was like, no, 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 no. Because Jesus is Jewish. And most of the people following him, probably just about everybody there except for the Roman centurion is Jewish. And Jewish people didn't go in the non-Jewish people's house. It was not done. Okay? Ever. To the point that when Jesus is, is arrested by the Jewish religious leaders and they take him to the Roman governor's palace so that the Roman governor can have him executed, they don't even go into the Roman governor's palace to level their charges. They basically stand outside and like, we don't like this guy, and yell it across the threshold. Because you didn't go into a Gentile's house. You absolutely did not do that. And so this, we, we don't, I don't think we really understand how big a deal this was. Uh, and Gentile is just a word that just means non-Jewish person. Um, but another word that the, peop- that the Jews of Jesus' day would use to describe the Gentiles was pagans. So that's kind of how, how they were viewed. Jesus, however, throws that all aside because he sees this man's heart. He sees this man's concern for his servant. And he sees this man's faith. And that's our second shocking gasp moment that he says, I haven't found faith like this in any of you folks from Israel. You folks who should have this faith. And this Roman centurion's got more than you. The interesting thing about this, Jesus is, it said that Jesus marveled. Some translations say he was amazed. There are two places recorded in all four Gospels where Jesus is said to be amazed. One time, this one is one, and the second one is when he is amazed by a Jewish town's lack of faith. And here, he's amazed at the Roman centurion's faith, the faith of one commonly referred to as a Gentile. And notice something about this. This Roman centurion believes that Jesus is so powerful that he never even has to lay hands or even eyes on his servant. You can just say the word. Interestingly, there are only, I'm going to say one and a half other stories like that. I say one and a half because there's a story in John that seems very similar to this. It's a, it, it says an official's um, son was sick, and it seems very, very similar to this one, and there's some debate among Bible scholars if it's the same story or different versions, whatever. But the other one um, is a Canaanite woman, again, um, a, 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 a Gentile, not a Jewish woman, and uh, her daughter is possessed by a demon, and she asked Jesus uh, to, to heal her, her daughter. If you want to know more about that, um, Roel, one of our former staff members, did a great talk about this last semester. You can find it on our YouTube channel. Jesus heals her from afar. It's just fascinating that the people who had enough faith to say, you don't have to come to my house, just say they'll be healed and they will be, are the people that are called pagans by the people that are supposed to be most faithful. See, for Jesus to say that this Roman centurion has more faith than he has found in Israel is absolutely outlandish, borderline blasphemous. Because the Romans 
were the enemy. The Jews were living under Roman occupation. See, the Jewish misunderstanding misunderstanding of the Messiah, the promised king, was that he was going to be this warrior king who was going to ride in on a war horse and kick the Romans back to Italy. That misunderstanding is why so many of Jesus' contemporaries missed that he was and is the Messiah. It's why they didn't understand how this, this rabbi, this Jewish religious teacher, could talk with this Roman at all. I mean, it says there's a crowd around him. So Jesus took his attention off of the Jewish people who were listening to him and gave it to this Roman centurion. Not only that, he offers to go to his house, offers to help him. That, that just doesn't make sense to these people because the Romans are the enemy. But what's fascinating is the way Matthew arranges his gospel. This is Matthew 8, and depending on, you know, Bible, translation, size of print, size of pages, you're probably two pages away from a teaching that Jesus gave that he is then living out here in Matthew 8. And that teaching is something we call the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to spend some time in there come February, March, and a little bit of April. Um, but I want to share this part because this, Matthew 8 is Jesus living out what he says in Matthew 5. So this will be up, uh, up behind me, Matthew 5, starting in verse 43. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. There's a whole section in, uh, in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus does this. He says, You've heard this said, but I tell you this. Where Jesus is like, Okay, you know what the law says. My standards are even higher than that. Uh, and just real quick, let me point out, the Jewish religious law never says hate your enemy. Okay, No, Jesus is not mistaken because they have been taught this. They have heard it said, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. Love your neighbor is in the Jewish religious law. Hate your enemy is not. This is something that Jewish religious leaders, other rabbis, had basically turned into, into a tradition. This was a traditional teaching, not a teaching straight from God's word. That seems to go completely against God's word. See, 21st century Christians aren't the first people to have religious traditions that, that completely defy God's law. Hmm, that's something to that, but we'll just move on from that. Um, so here we go. He says, if you have heard of this said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do that? And that is a very much a slam because tax collectors were, as far as the Jewish people were concerned, they were traitors because these were Jewish people who worked for Rome to collect Roman taxes from their fellow Jews. So Jesus is basically saying, you love those who love you, the tax collectors do that. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor, hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies. Oh, you love the people that love you. You can almost, I can at least hear Jesus going, you love the people that love you. Well, la dee freaking da. I mean, the tax collectors and the pagans do that. Good for you. Okay, this, this is just... But instead, he talks about how God blesses the evil and the good, the just and the unjust. God loves people that don't love him. 
That's where Jesus learned it from. I mean, Jesus and God have been together since before there was time. And Jesus had seen God make the sunshine on people that tried to do right and people that weren't concerned about doing right at all. Jesus had watched God make it rain on the fields of farmers who were cursing God for whatever reason. Jesus learned love for enemies by watching his heavenly father. He says this all the time that his teaching is not his own. It's God's. Love for enemies. So see, Jesus loves the people that I don't like. The question is, will I? Um, if this is one of your first times with us or you hadn't been here in a while, maybe you forgot. I like using questions. Uh, I, I want that to be the, you know, if there's only one thing you remember, I want it to be this slide. Uh, because I think questions stick better. Uh, and I think first-person questions stick a whole lot better. Because I think if I, if I change these pronouns and say, Jesus loves the people you don't like, will you? Well, you're just going to ignore that because that's just finger-pointing and just mean and rude and just not cool. But if you'll dare to ask yourself a question, that's when your life changes. That's when your lens that you view life through changes, when we're willing to ask ourselves questions. So that's why I always want to encourage us to ask these questions. And by the way, the word encourage, just so you know, doesn't mean to make you comfortable or to help you. The word encourage literally means to give you courage. And it takes courage to ask yourself tough questions like this, because the question isn't, should I love these people? Yeah, we all know I sh we should. It's not, can I? Because yeah, we can. The question is, will I? See, so what Jesus has done here, what Matthew has set up Jesus is doing here between Matthew 5 and Matthew 8 is kind of flipping the whole uh, show-and-tell game uh, that maybe we got to play in kindergarten, you know, where you show your friends something and then tell them what it is. See, Jesus has kind of flipped that here because in Matthew 5, he tells us about love. And then in Matthew 8, he shows us. I have, a, I have a very dear friend uh, named Fred who, uh, Fred has a church in Williamsburg, uh, Virginia. He's the, uh, he's the lead pastor up there. And he always tells his people that love has to look like something. Love has to look like something. And sure, it can look like spending time with friends and family. Uh, it can look like... Uh, paying for a friend's coffee and telling them not to pay you back. That's absolutely love. And it can look like giving a few bucks to somebody journeying through homelessness or maybe holding the door for a stranger or giving up your bus seat. But to quote Jesus, not really, but what I think Jesus would have said, la de freaking die everybody does that. I mean, what's, what's the big deal with that? But what does enemy love look like? Like, what does it look like? To love the people that we don't like. I'll start with a hypothetical to ease us in. It looks like letting that car that cut me off a mile back in when they end up in a little bit of a tricky situation and now they've got their blinker on hoping somebody will let them in. It looks like my friend Barrett, years ago playing in a Church league basketball game. Barrett went up for a rebound, and when he went up for the rebound, the guy in front of him just backed straight up into him, which cuts your legs out from underneath you. And Barrett ended up, he was able to kind of turn so he didn't land on his head. He landed kind of on his shoulder and his back. 
And on his way down, as he was, you know, trying to flail and get some sense of balance, he knocked the guy's glasses off his face. And love for your enemy looks like Barrett getting up off the floor, picking up the guy's glasses and being like, here you go, man. And then just getting ready for the out-of-bounds play because the ref didn't call a foul. Anyway, um, it looks like my friend Adam forgiving the young man whose DUI killed Adam's stepdad. Young man, y'all's age. He was college age. Um, Convicted of DUI and vehicular homicide. And when it came to sentencing, uh, the judge let Adam's family speak. And every single member of Adam's family asked the judge to give the young man the maximum sentence. And Adam asked the judge to give him the minimum sentence. More recently... It looks like an Israeli hostage pausing during her release to look one of her kidnappers in the eye, take him by the hand, and say, Shalom, which if you're not familiar means peace. It looks like Martin Luther King III forgiving the man who killed his father. Now, where do you suppose he learned that? I learned literally just yesterday. He was only 10 when Dr. King was, was assassinated, but he clearly in those 10 years had been paying attention. He learned how important his dad thought loving our enemies is, and I, and I can't help but wonder how often over the course of his life he's read the words that we're about to read, because this is what Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. said regarding Jesus' command to love our enemies. He said, certainly these are great words, and by, he means love your enemies. Certainly these are great words, words lifted to cosmic proportions. And over the centuries, many persons have argued that this is an extremely difficult command. Many would go so far as to say that it, isn't, that it just isn't possible to move out into the actual practice of this glorious command. They would go on to say that this is just additional proof that Jesus was an impractical idealist who never quite came down to earth. And so the arguments abound. But, far from being an impractical idealist, Jesus has become the practical realist. The words of this text glitter in our eyes with new urgency. And that was 60 years ago, even newer urgency, I believe, for us. Far from being... The man had such a way with words. Far from being the pious injunction of a utopian dreamer, this command is an absolute necessity for the survival of our civilization. Yes, it is love that will save our world and our civilization. Love even for enemies. Practical realist. Command. Absolute necessity. Dr. King believed that about Jesus' teaching to love our enemies. You know, at the beginning I said, hopefully tonight will be useful because we're going to realize that something that is often labeled idealistic, impractical, and optional is actually very practical, very necessary, and it's commanded, it's required. Now I think with this, it's very easy to, for us to think, well, Donnie, I don't, 
I don't really feel like I have any enemies. Man, that's a big word. I mean, yeah, people don't get along with. I mean, have you met the people in my group for this project that's coming up already? Good grief. Um, but I, I don't know. I mean, enemies is a big word. I know it is. That's why I phrased the question the way I did. I didn't say Jesus loves my enemies, will I? I said Jesus loves the people I don't like, will I? Because we all got plenty of people we don't like, and not just the hypothetical person that cuts you off. Okay, we do. Now, what's interesting is I was, as I was looking at this, I was like, you know what, I feel like I've seen t-shirts that say this. And I found some very interesting t-shirts. By the way, just it, Christian t-shirts are just fascinating. Um, so we have these two t-shirts. This one says, Jesus loves everyone you hate. And this one says, Jesus loves the people we hate. I'm going to bet this one sells a whole lot better than this one. I am imagining that the idea that, okay, Jesus loves the people you hate, I bet that sells better than Jesus loves the people that we hate. But here's the thing. If screaming at my enemies that they should love their enemies is how I choose to do things, I have missed the point. Okay, y'all, I am fully aware that some of the folks that preach at Tate are hateful. I get that. Okay, that hasn't changed. Yes, it was a long time since I graduated, but trust me, that was still a thing. But if I'm yelling at them that they need to love people instead of condemning people, it's like, you're being a jerk for calling everybody a jerk. <laughs> Wait. It's like, that should get my attention. Okay. And I get, I mean, I mean yeah, I, I don't like what they do. It drives me nuts. But if I'm screaming at them for the way they're treating people, then I'm treating people the same way. And I've completely missed the point. I mean, I get it. Loving people we don't like, let alone people that have hurt us or hurt people close to us, it's not easy. It's really hard. So what we do with this now is it's up to us. What we do with that question. If we want to, we can keep it broad and general and hypothetical and, and, and nebulous. And honestly, it won't mean anything. And we, we might as well have just not even had this part. We might as well have just, you know, kept eating peach dump cake or something. But if we hear Dr. King's words and we can see loving our enemies as one of Jesus' commands... And that for commanding it, Jesus is the practical realist. And then see it as an absolute necessity for the life that God wants for mankind. Because it is. Loving everybody. is what Jesus and God, that's how they created things. Now I told you about some friends of mine and you know some folks that I don't know but things I saw in the news. Let me tell you what... This looks like for me, loving enemies or people I don't like. It looks like um, a couple months ago, going to uh, going to a funeral for uh, a lady that I used to work with when I when I was teaching. Um, just a sweet, sweet lady that meant the world to me. So I went, and and I knew it was going to be a difficult thing to. 
to go to because I knew I was going to see some people that I had formerly worked with. Um, in my last teaching job, um, I did not leave because I wanted to. Uh, I left because they uh, decided not to give me a contract. And you don't go back to teaching a school that doesn't give you a contract. Um, and uh, over the course of, uh, that was about 15 years ago, by the way. Um, and over the course of, of learning some things, I found out in late February that I wasn't going to, so I had a few months to work. And over the course of, of talking to some folks and finding some things out, I, I found out that there were two folks that were primarily responsible for that. Apparently some things were said about me behind my back that I never got to talk about or whatever. Uh, I won't say defend myself for because I don't know what they said, but I feel very confident I didn't need to defend myself because there's no point in defending yourself against something that's not true. Um, but it looks like, for me, when they came up to me after that funeral, uh, <laughs> with just these great big friendly uh, smiles on their faces and, and go in for a hug because I guess they don't know that I know, it looks like me giving them a hug and telling them that I hope they're doing well. And here's the important part, meaning it. Which would not have happened three years after. It took a while to get over it. And how I got to that point was God just got up in my head and started messing with my business, because that's what he'll do, and he would just put them in my mind. And every time he did, I'd pray for him. Not, all right, cool, God, praying for him. No, specific stuff. You know, even if it was just as simple as um, praying that they catch green lights on their way to work. One of them. Uh, the other one um, had retired. And I was, you know, pray for, for her health. She had had some health issues. Pray for her husband's health. He had had some health issues. Pray that she was getting to spend time with her uh, adult children and, and grandkids and stuff. And for the first um, couple years of doing that, I did not want to. Okay, just straight up, I didn't. Because here's the thing about that job. When I, when I got hired for that job, um, it was all I'd ever wanted to do was teach math at that school. And I was actually let go. I taught... Um, math and science uh, for seven years and because that, that sixth grade wasn't big enough to need a full-time math and a full-time science teacher it was big enough the next year so literally uh, I was fired not fired my contract was not renewed right before I had my dream job so I mean my sweet wife will tell you I was mad for a long time because that was what I always thought uh, I was supposed to do. The plan was to retire from there. God knew about this big blue house on Millage, though, so um, worked out better for sure. Um, I can, and I didn't think about this, this is not on my notes. I can honestly tell you I like them now because God changed my heart. Okay, um, I knew I needed to love them the whole time, uh, but I can honestly tell you that, yeah, that I, that, that I even like them um, now. 
So that's what I think about. I wonder what each of us think about. Because here's what I think. I feel pretty confident in this. That when, when the slide, Jesus loves the people I don't like, will I. The first time that popped up, a face popped into your mind. And you really wish it had. And right now, some of y'all are like, dang it, Donnie. It's like, yep, sorry. God did it to me, so I'm doing it back to you. Um, maybe even an idea of something you can do. I, I don't know. So what are we going to do with it? Uh, if you want to, you can dismiss it because love your enemies is just another example of an unrealistic message from that crazy teacher back 2,000 years ago. Or we can embrace it as the command of the practical realist and an absolute necessity for the well-being of all of mankind. Because the same one who commanded that to love our enemies is the one who said that the two greatest commands in the Hebrew Scriptures are love God and love people. And here's the thing about people. Every single one of us is made in the image of God. Every single one of us. Okay. The person that hurt someone very close to you, the person that hurt you, people that are doing horribly evil things all over the world, but I, I don't want get, to, if we get too nebulous, we just, we just make it out there and then we don't bring it back home. But the people that have hurt you are made in the image of God. And here's the problem with that. If I can't love somebody that's made, if I can't love an image of God, that's a particular person, I can't really love God. One of Jesus' closest followers the one that, Jesus, that, that he gave himself the nickname for the one that Jesus loved, but Jesus wasn't lying, no, you shouldn't say that. And he was like, yeah, go ahead, write it, it's fine. He says this, he's like, you can't, if, you, if you can't love people you see, you can't love God who you can't see. Love God, love people. It's so short. It's so simple. I mean, it's not complicated, but man, it ain't easy. And this is why I say that when I leave these questions with us, I am trying to encourage us because it takes courage to love your enemies. Well, yeah, but what if they don't love me back? That's not on you. Okay, that's not, you know, it's just like, I don't want to give money to somebody journeying through homeless. I don't know what they're going to do with it. Yeah, you don't. What they do with it's on them. Whether or not you give is on you. If they decide not to love you, that is their problem. But we need to love people, even the ones that are hard to love. Because the reality is, love God, love people. It's not complicated, but it sure isn't easy. And with that in mind, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. As we show that we love God, 
by the way we love people. All people. Let's pray. God, um, thank you. Thank you for loving us, uh, even while, you know, while we were still sinners. Jesus died for us. Um, thank you. Thank you for the hard commands. Thank you for the, for the commands that, that we wish you hadn't said, but you did. And thank you that they're recorded and thank you that we have them. Because the reality is loving your enemies may be hard. But I don't think any of us want to live in a world where nobody tries to do that. God, um, I know some of the stories in this room, and I know some of us are just really, really struggling right now because the face that, uh, that popped into our heads did horrible things. And so I know that is hard. But I know that your word says that love covers over a multitude of sins. And so that is, that is what you do, God. Give us the courage to love when it's hard, to love when it's uncomfortable, and to love when it doesn't make any sense. Because if we... If we, if we love that way, we'll show that we're really following you because your love for us doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but we are so, so thankful for it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.